do through the internet tubes on a really kind of weird rainy day outside, but it's uh, warm and cozy in here in our little internet home. I'm Richard Krauss. On the other end of the line is... Hello, I'm Chris Abel. And, uh, you know, we, we get together uh, once a week and uh, just discuss things that are appealing to us in the moment and, you know, whatever is sort of riffing off the top of our heads uh, uh, currently. And, you know, last week we talked about um, uh, a few different things, uh, some of which I've got a couple of comments. We had, because we do a thing called Movie Pistols at Dawn, right? And we got, let's discuss that first. Let's get that out of the way first. How did, how did we do here? Okay. Actually, I forgot to even check ah. to see what the, the voting is. You can go to our website at com. We put up a little voting poll there. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we asked right last now, week uh, was uh, because it was a blue moon, because it was the second full moon in a month, normally you only get one. Right. Because it was two, we asked what movies were um, that featured the song Blue Moon. Right. Sort of the best. And Wow! I am happy to announce it was a tie. Well, you know, I, I'm not surprised by this. I'm unsurprised by this. Uh, you know, I think people, you, your choice was American Werewolf in London. Uh, mine was the, the Blue Moon song used in the movie Mystery Train, the Jim Jarmusch film. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, those films are equally deserving of a little thumbs up. Well, we have to give a, a shout out here. Um, uh, I want to, well, first of all, Mark Asquith from the Space Channel, yes. uh, he weighed in and he, he wanted to make it very clear, he voted with you. Oh, uh, excellent. And, all right. Of course, you know, which is surprising because it's Space Channel. You think werewolves yeah. would trump everything. But uh, yeah. no, he actually has seen Mystery Train, uh, your mm -hmm. choice, and actually thought that it did a better job of linking all three of those together. Uh, so that would be kind of cool. And right. then also, and I'm looking for, there was uh, another suggestion, which is... Mm -mm -mm -mm. I believe it was Tara Reed here. I just want to confirm that. Yes, Miss Tara Reed was very quick. As soon as I posted that question on Facebook, it was like, right. within seconds, she was like, uh, Greece. Hello. Oh, you know? There you and go. Yeah. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, uh, Greece's version of uh, Blue Moon, of course, is memorable. And I looked it up because it's been a while since I've seen Greece, and it's notable because they actually have guys dropping their pants doing a moon with a blue light so they're hanging the blue moon as we uh, yeah yeah well <laughs> Tara Reed with her dirty mind picked up on that right away I don't know well, I'm not saying that that's I why she picked it Listen, she I'm was just telling Greece yes oh no I'm of just talking but that's fun yes yeah. no <laughs> well I, uh, I I all I've been doing for the past uh, few weeks is screening movies in advance of the Toronto International Film Festival which starts uh, on Thursday. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's really, you know, all that's going on in my head right now, other than trying to schedule interviews and things that I'll start doing on Thursday. Uh, there's a large amount of movies that I've seen. Uh, and one movie that I didn't see, which people may find surprising, was The Oogie Loves in the Big Balloon Adventure. <laughs> now, The Oogie Loves in the Big Balloon Adventure uh, made its debut this weekend, uh, the Labor Day weekend, and uh, it got off, you know, to kind of a slow start on Wednesday, uh, but now, as we sit here on the other end of the weekend, it's now Tuesday, uh, it has ranked as the worst debut ever. And <laughs> now, the worst debut ever is, it, it's kind of a, a relative uh, term, because, of course, it's the worst debut 
for a movie that was on 2,000 screens or more. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is, you know, I mean, that's a lot of screens. Like, if you imagine that probably Batman, which is, you know, just recently went over uh, the billion dollar mark uh, earlier this week, um, that bowed uh, on its opening weekend to about 3,500 screens. So uh, this, if you can imagine, and, and that movie made 400 and some odd million dollars. This one, uh, the three-day weekend, brought in only $445,000, or roughly about $30 per screen. That's and, amazing. I, I'd heard about it. I didn't realize that it opened on Wednesday. I mean, that's yeah. the, the beautiful, you know, perfect timing. Open on a Wednesday. You've got a long weekend. You should be having a huge opening, right? A oh, family well, film. Well, see, this is the thing. You know, somebody said to me earlier, well, that's because families aren't going to movies anymore. It's like, well, that couldn't be further from the truth. Families do go to movies. Uh, in fact, you know, if you look back at some of the highest grossing films of the summer, uh, there were things like Madagascar and, you know, all stuff because, you know, when you have a family film, you not only get mom and or dad, but you also two or three kids and then they buy popcorn and the whole thing. So it, it, it is, uh, uh, it's, it can be a family affair rather than just like maybe a date night, you know, but this movie, um, which was produced by the same people that made Teletubbies. And I'm just going to throw up a picture here uh, so that we all kind of know what we're talking about. That's what, that's what they look like. Well, um, was it actually loves. produced by the same people of Teletubbies or as I've read it, it was, by the same marketer. Oh, well, that's okay. Well, I, I, I feel that they are one and the same. And okay. here, here's the thing. I mean, the, the idea, I mean, you know what? I'm done looking at that picture. There we Thank go. Yeah. And I'm sure, they, I'm sure they are too. I'm sure that whoever uh, put up the millions of dollars uh, that cost to make this movie are, are not feeling great about it. Uh, another producer named uh, Ken Vuzzleman told Entertainment Weekly, uh, that uh, he, his quote was, only an idiot or a liar could say that they weren't disappointed in those numbers. Yeah, $30 per screen, I think probably you're, you're absolutely right. Which but means I, that you've got in each theater one parent and one kid at $30. Yeah, I mean, like quite literally, no. But you have to wonder why. You know, I mean, you know, other movies did okay over the weekend. The Possession, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later on, mm-hmm. uh, did okay. And, you know, this is a movie that cost virtually nothing to make and uh, uh, was a devil uh, possession movie, or a demon, not specifically devil, they have a new twist on it, it's a, it's a demon, an ancient demon, and uh, that movie made quite a lot of money, uh, and so you have to wonder why, and, and the more I've talked to people about this, first of all, no one knew what the Oogie Loves were, uh, it wasn't marketed properly. There were a couple of ads in the newspaper, a couple of really unbelievably annoying ads on television, but they really didn't go all out uh, to let people know what was in there. So it was almost like it just got dumped uh, on this uh, on this uh, weekend. And you know, I, I just uh, you know, the, the, it just seems to have so much wrong with it. Like the director is Matthew Diamond. Uh, his main credit is directing So You Think You Can Dance. Uh-huh. And so it just strikes me that, you know, that you weren't looking, you're not looking for a strong narrative from someone who directs reality television. And, <laughs> you know, I, I feel badly for anyone who takes a, 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 you know, a beating like this at the theaters. But 
it's not, in fact, the lowest grossing movie of all time. The lowest grossing movie of all time only played on one theater. And I'm sure that it probably, or on one screen, and, and I'm sure probably what happened is someone in the cast had uh, in their contract that it had to play theatrically and couldn't just go direct to DVD. And it's a movie, and I should probably look this up because I can never remember exactly what it's called. Um, it's a Catherine Hagel movie with, with Tom Sizemore. Oh, wow. Yeah, and oh, wow. so you know, it's got people in it that you know that that you that you've heard of, uh, but uh, <laughs> but the thing is, it's called um, it's called Zizukik Road, but Zizukik is spelled, and I think that's how you pronounce it, is spelled Z Y Z Z Y X Road. And, wow. Yeah, so it's got a title that no one could pronounce. It has. Uh, Catherine Hegel, Tom Sizemore, uh, and it is about, uh, according to IMDb, a family man uh, travels to Los Angeles to meet the lucidious Lolita Marissa in a casino. Uh, while in the motel with Marissa, her violent ex-boyfriend, Joey wants to surprise him in bed, hits Grant on the head, but he can't, you know what, I don't even care enough about this movie to, uh, to read the rest of that. And this movie made $30 in its theatrical run. And the story that I've heard is that only three people came to see it, but one person left after, <laughs> after uh, about half an hour and demanded their money back and was given their money back. So this movie uh, has the record for the all-time uh, lowest gross of any movie, but uh, it was only on one screen, and it was a movie, again, that probably was contractually dumped into a theater just so that, you know, they could say, hey, we get well, a theatrical release in a tank. My understanding with Oogie Love is that it's meant to be a Rocky Horror Picture Show for kids. Yeah. That the yeah. concept of the film, it's actually got musical numbers where they wanted everybody in the theater to be able to sing along with the movie, which was why they were pushing for it to be in the theater. Right. And um, the, one of the preposterous things I find about this movie is that the, the ads that I've seen keep pushing this as being from the marketer of Teletubbies yeah. and Thomas the Tank Engine. I've read an article that said that the actual creator of the Teletubbies told this guy, you can't make a movie with this stuff because it's only for the little kids and the parents don't want to watch that. Right. That he had actually been warned, this is going to fail, it's not going to work from people who actually you know, were involved in the Teletubbies. But it, it makes me laugh because I, I think of the history of seeing trailers that say, from the people who brought you. Yeah, yeah. There was a time it used to be promoting the star. You would go and see the movie because the actor was in it or because it was a certain director. Then it became, it was based on a popular movie. I remember the first time I saw it from the producers of, which I mm -hmm. said, wait a minute, producers, who cares? Or, you know, from the distributors of, and I, I yeah. just, we've now gone one extra step where it's like from the marketing people who, yeah. you know, that's yeah, crazy. Well, and you have a, a, a cast of people, frankly, that weren't doing much else. I mean, you know, when I first saw an ad for this, I guess it was probably on Thursday or Friday, and uh, I saw, oh, look, there's Carrie Elwes, Christopher Lloyd, Jamie Presley, Cloris Leachman, Chaz Palminteri, Tony Braxton. It goes on like that. I thought, you know what? These are all people who, you know, wonderful performers, one and all, but aren't doing much else these days. Yeah. So maybe, you know, there was no star power to draw kids into this. Uh, parents, you could not, I mean, after... Uh, having a look at this picture, I mean, you know, let me throw it up again just so people can uh, <laughs> can know what they've missed here. I mean, you know, one look at that uh, would make you uh, want to open a vein rather than go <laughs> take your kids and spend a couple hours in the movie theater. Uh, so uh, the Oogie Loves big flop over the weekend, but you know what? Yeah, I didn't see it. I uh, 
it, it's worth having a look at A.O. Scott's review of okay. this movie. Uh, A.O. Scott, of course, uh, one of the sort of better known film critics. So let me just see if I can find. Uh, I can't believe he actually quick. went to see it. I mean, you know, good for him, but. Well, you know, like, uh, yeah, the New York Times reviewed it. And uh, A.O. Scott was the, was the critic. And uh, um, he's written it in the, the voice of uh, Stella, who's a little girl. Dear Mr. Scott, she says, she writes, here is my critic of Oogie Loves, The Balloon Adventure. Thanks for the dollar. I hope you like your gin tonic. They had milkshakes at the screening. And it goes on, uh, written in a child's voice. Um, uh, and, I mean, it, it, it's worth having a look at. We'll put a link to this review uh, up on heyallyouzombies.com yeah. because uh, it's worth having a look at to read like what a horrified and disgruntled film critic uh, who's in the middle of festival season thinks about a movie called Oogie Loves. Oogie Loves. <laughs> oh, that's horrible. Um, I want to talk about another movie that has failed recently, but uh, for, I think, very interesting reasons. I, I, I'm very intrigued about movies that um, end up challenging audiences or get a reaction of audiences that aren't really uh, intended or anticipated. Right. The movie I want to talk about is called Compliance. Yeah. Uh, have you seen it? Or I have not seen Compliance. Compliance, you know, on my Facebook page and on my Twitter page, people constantly, like, should I go see, you know, should I, how right. about this movie? And, you know, and, and it, you know, in any given weekend, I'll get uh, 25 of those requests. This weekend and the last couple of weekends, it's all been about compliance. Interesting. Uh, people ask me if I've seen it. Uh, should I go see it? Or... Even worse. Oh my God! I saw compliance. Was uh, some of the comments of the people uh, running in horror uh, from the theater. Well, I haven't seen it, uh, and so I'm going to continue the trend we're doing this week of talking about movies we haven't seen. Right. But right. Um, uh, I, I'm at least familiar with the material that it's trying to grapple with, right. and. I can't see it right now. I did a search. It's gone from all the movie theaters. It seems to have become a failed movie in that um, it's been put out and it's disappeared as soon as it, it did a couple of weeks worth. But I've gone online and I've, I've done uh, searches of, of reviews, but most importantly looked at a lot of the reactions of people who have seen it, and it's just been all negative. Everyone who has seen it uh, has rejected it, but apparently not because it's poorly made, not because right. it's poorly acted or poorly written, but because they feel that the, the events that are dis displayed on the screen are preposterous, are right. really hard to believe, uh, hard to take. In fact, most people equate the movie because it, it's a psychological thriller. I guess mm -hmm. is the way to put it, but most people have been equating it to being like torture porn, that the only right. reason you would go and see this is to watch some poor person go through a horrible experience. What's intriguing about that is that I don't think is the intention of the filmmakers, because what they're trying to dramatize is some real-life uh, occurrences, some real-life phenomenon that is very fascinating. Guys like me have been following it, but... Obviously, you know, in the efforts to try to turn it into a movie, it just doesn't kind of work. And, and that's because it reveals something about human nature that I think most of us don't want to see. Uh, it sort of shows off a bit of a, a human weakness that we just simply don't want to be able to face. Mm -hmm. uh, so to, what the hell I'm talking about is the, the title of the movie, Compliance, is a nod to some 1960s experiments done by a man named Stanley Milgram. Right. And they were landmark. Incredible! If you've ever heard of them, they will just blow your mind. Well, they're about inflicting pain on people because you're told to, right? 
actually that's that's one experiment that everybody sort of repeats, right. but it's more than that. So what happened was in the 1960s, Stanley Milgram, he's a, a, a behavioral researcher, psychologist, uh, he asked himself the question of what is it that causes people to obey others during right. times of war? Uh, he specifically was thinking of the, the Germans with Nazis, but also there have been other times, war crimes and stuff like that. How can you take an entire country? Obviously not everybody in the country is a monster, but yet they, for a brief period of time, became a monster, and how does that happen? So the, the one interesting experiment that he did that I still find fascinating is that he had a bunch of researchers go out onto the New York subway. New York City, if you've been on the subway, I know I have there, uh, they're really a tough people. <laughs> the very, very, you know, like in your face, not going to take any kind of crap from anybody. Right. And so he told these people to go out into the subway and to walk up to people sitting on the subway and bluntly uh, walk up to them and just say, may I have your seat? Mm -hmm. Don't tell them why, but yeah. just simply say, may I have your seat? I want to sit there. Yeah. yeah. The prediction is that the majority of people are going to tell you where to go take your hat. Uh, and time and time again, People would, although their reaction might have been to say no, they just sort of slump and go, well, okay, and they get right. up and give their seat, even though this is New York City and people don't do that. And they were doing that with big, huge, strong guys. They were doing it with uh, mothers who had lots of uh, groceries, their little old men, you know, and not only did they successfully get people to give up their seat, but nobody really stood up for these poor souls to, right. to say, why are you picking on them? Very intriguing. The, ex the expectation was that people would rebel against that. They would defy you just because you're coming up and acting like a bully and saying, give me your seat. Right, uh, right. His conclusion from that was that when we make decisions, we tend to think, if you, you know, you're talking theoretically, most people think that they're going to make their decisions based on their character or their personality. I'm not the kind of person that would do that. Right. But in reality, when you're in that situation, you're under social pressure. And it's sort of the animal part of your brain that reacts instead that says, well, I'm expected to behave this way. And more often than not, people become very passive in that situation or they're open to um, allowing someone who represents authority to kind of take over and, and just, you know, tell them what to do. Right, right. And so uh, the, the big infamous experiment that he did next was he ratcheted up and he said, okay, well, let's see if we can get to the point where uh, not only, you know, it's one thing to get somebody to give up a seat, it's another thing to get a person to kill another human being. Right, right. And this is where things got interesting because they would take a bunch of volunteers and bring them into an institution and they would have them sit at a table and they'd say, okay, what we need you to do is we need you to run a bunch of tests. We're going to have some other volunteers come in, you're going to run tests on them. What these people didn't know was it was all a big setup. Everything that was in the room, all the people they were talking to were fake. Right. So they had one person dressed in a uh, lab coat. Uh, and they yeah. said, look, I'm the, the scientist. I'm you know, here to oversee the experiment. I'm going to ask you to um, give a test of memory questions to another person who's in another room. Well, and they probably had a clipboard as well, which makes them even doubly efficient yeah, that, and uh, official the, looking. Yeah. The clipboard and the lab coat. And this poor soul who was volunteered was then given a set of controls and knobs and buttons. And they said, right. that person, you're going to ask them a question. If they give the wrong answer, we want you to deliver them an electric shock. Right. Every time they deliver a wrong answer, we want you to give increase the voltage. So the electrical shock that they're going to get is going to become worse and worse. And, of course, the idea being that, you know, I guess the person's thinking, well, they're trying to see if, if you can teach someone to increase their memory through pain. Um, 
But what was intriguing about it was that as the other person in the other room, who's an actor, continues to deliver wrong answers right. and continues to get voltage and scream out in pain and beg for mercy and do all those horrible things, would the other person continue on with the experiment or would they have enough sense to stand up and say, no, this is wrong, I'm not going to do it anymore? And what was fascinating about it was um, that although most of the people who were running this whole big scheme predicted that you would have a very few number of people that would actually stand up. In fact, most of the scholars and the professors who had been consulted on this said, well, we expect maybe 1% of the people would actually continue on where they would deliver a lethal dosage of voltage. The reality was that up to two-thirds of the people involved in the, the experiment continued on. And there's footage that you can watch because they've recorded all this on camera. And these poor souls would get to a point where they would look to the other person and say, are you sure you want me to continue? I'm hearing this guy screaming. I don't think this is a good idea. And the person in the lab coat would just continue to re reinforce, this is what we need to do for the experiment. The experiment dictates that we have to continue. Please continue going. They would even stop and say, well, who's going to take responsibility for me for right. this, if this guy dies? And they say, I do. I'm the guy wearing the lab coat. I've got the clipboard in my hand. I'll take responsibility for it. You just worry about your job and continue on with your button and press the button. And that's the conflict that was sort of brought forth was that when people are put into that position, they get to a, a point of social pressure where their behavior is dictated by what society wants of them, that they kind of put aside their moral compass. They put aside their character and their personality, and they just kind of say, well, I got to do what's required of me, and this guy is going to take responsibility. And at that point on, all they're concerned about is just getting through the ordeal. As soon as I can get this guy to, to complete the test and give the electrical shock, then I'm done and I can walk away. Right. And that becomes the social... Um, dynamic that allows people to become executioners, even though they would never harm a fly walking into a room. Right, or or even like you know, one of the things that people said about Adolf Eichmann, they just saying what an ordinary man he was, and he was, uh, you know, someone who I think, uh, you know, the, I mean, the, the phrase was coined to describe him: the ordinariness of evil. Someone who allowed himself just to go, you know what. I'm, I'm being told to do this. I'm just following orders. There is nothing, uh, you know, I, I'm morally doing nothing wrong because I'm doing what I'm told to do. My superiors are telling me to do this. Right. And uh, there was, there's a film at the film festival this year, which I haven't seen yet, uh, but it's about a woman who, uh, who wrote an article about him and went to the trials in Nuremberg and described him as, you know, the, the most unassuming, insignificant, person, but who, of course, was the responsible for the death of thousands, if not hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of people during the war. And, you know, the idea being that, you know, he was, he was not coerced, particularly, yeah. <laughs> but he was, he was, he was uh, doing something that he was told to do, and that was his excuse. That was his only excuse. Well, and it's, I mean, it's a mechanism that serves a, a useful purpose in that when you have human beings getting together and they're forming villages and they're forming large cities, you now have the, the, the restrictions of a society. Everybody has to be able to work together. Everybody has to get along. And right. so there has to be a degree of compliance amongst ourselves just so that we aren't killing each other and we're not, you know, the part of the miracle of every day that everybody gets in the car and doesn't end up in a car crash on the way to work, that everybody sort of follows the rules as they get right. there and we all kind of get safely is the fact that we all kind of comply, but that occasionally it becomes a situation that can be exploited. 
uh, you know, that that's what happened in Germany. It's what's happened in other countries where you have war crimes that are happening. Um, but this movie, Compliance, is about the fact that it happened rather recently in the United States mm -hmm. in a most unusual circumstance where there was a gentleman who was committing the most bizarre crime. He would call um, restaurants, he would call shopping uh, uh, stores, and he would pretend to be a police officer. I so know, again, this is, uh, that anyone would do this still boggles my mind. Yeah, and that's the wrong, I think the, what's interesting is that the movie has failed because I think people have that problem with right. the film. No one right. believes that what they're seeing on the film is something that is uh, worth listening to. This is a, a pile of bunk. But this guy, what he would do is he would contact a store. So you already have a store where there's an environment where you have a system of authority and people who are serving others. You have a concern over security. He would contact the store manager and give this elaborate story about how he's a police officer, how the uh, law enforcement is sort of overburdened in the area. They can't get an officer to the store, but they know for a fact that one of the cashiers is a thief. And so through an elaborate deception that involves having, you know, the sound of um, receivers and police radios in the background and maybe having a gruff voice and using the right terminology, he manages to convince the manager to take this poor cashier, uh, and the, the story that the movie follows is one event where it's a 19-year-old girl, into her back room and proceeds to convince this manager to strip search her to uh, search her body cavities. Right. Uh, in fact, uh, at one point she has to, to go somewhere and so uh, I think uh, her fiance comes in and takes over and he ends up getting the cashier to perform sexual acts on her. It's really appalling how the situation unfolds. Uh, but what is interesting about it is that the people who are lured into these situations to perform these acts, not just the victims, this poor girl who stood there I think for six hours locked in this room, uh, naked while all this stuff is being done to her. And again, you know, no one thought to pick up uh, another phone and call the police just to make mm -hmm. sure or, you know, any of those things. It was just such a convincing and compelling situation that had been created. This person knew what he was doing that he could compel these people to do these awful, horrible things. Right. But what is intriguing about it, oh, and, you know, to make matters worse, the guy, although he was eventually caught, uh, he was acquitted of all charges. Because he didn't actually do anything. Correct, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, he, and he didn't ever touch anybody. Yeah, yeah, it's a horrible, horrible story to find out, but fascinating yeah. in terms of what it says. What's interesting is that the poor guys who were lured in and performed these acts afterwards, they would experience a dramatic change, and that while they were there, because they were complying with what they thought was needed of them, during during that moment, they'd sort of put aside their moral character and their personality. Afterwards, they would switch back. Right. And you would immediately feel horrible feelings of, I've done something absolutely horrible. And this is also what happened in the Milgram experiment, that these poor guys, after the experiment was over, would suddenly, you know, come to this realization, I just did something horrible. I should have been standing up and saying, no, don't right. make me throw the switch, but you went ahead and did it. So it's intriguing to me because the reviews I've read seem to show that the movie did, you know, capture this correctly, did try to present it from the interesting angle that it is, but... Everybody going in doesn't understand the, the, the context behind it, walks away just, you know, I can't believe this is real, and this is true. Well, and people were walking just because simply they didn't want to see anything that was quite that unpleasant. From what I understand, I haven't seen it. So, you know, I, 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 I'm not going to judge the thing because I haven't seen it. But the reaction that I got on my Facebook page and on my Twitter account and things were people that were just like minds were blown by what they were seeing. And it happens. I mean, you know. Uh, as I, uh, let me, uh, I'm, I'm about to do my, uh, my 
shameless uh, plug of the week here, so I oh, have to get yeah, ready. Yeah, I like this. Um, because I, I've just, uh, you know, my, my new book on Ken Russell's movie, The Devils. <laughs> Where oh. are they? There we go. They uh, put the little devil horns on. Uh, that uh, comes out uh, in October, and that's a movie that blew people's minds, and people walked out in droves. Um, not because of, uh, you know, the subject matter, not because, well, in part because of the subject matter, but not because they didn't understand it. It's because they just simply, in many cases, did not want to see the things that he was presenting right. uh, in the movie. Well, and and I can, should be careful to say I'm not advocating that the um, – Milgram experiments and and you know all the results that they found yeah. should be presented as entertainment. Right, right, I think right. that it is something that people should read about and hear about because one of the unusual uh, aspects to that criminal case, this was a crime that wasn't committed once or twice, but I think it was right. up to like sixty times across the United States. Was that regardless of how many times people have been sent memos saying we're getting these crank calls, this kind of situation comes, everybody found it so preposterous right. that they merely dismissed it and didn't pay attention. So I think it is valid to have documentaries that maybe present the, the information to show some of the, the original footage that was done uh, by Milgram and his associates. Maybe it's not suitable as a popcorn movie that you would see in a theater. <laughs> But it was playing at the Tiff Bell Lightbox in Toronto, I think. I mean, it wasn't playing, you know, at the local, the corner, you know, theater. So it was being presented as uh, something a little different. So, you know. Well, the, the responses I read were from, like, Internet Movie Database, uh, people who had kind of, you know, seen the movie and felt compelled to go home and write a little summary on it. And a lot of the, the average ratings on it have been about six or eight. I was looking for people to kind of say I didn't like the actress or I didn't like the writing or I thought the production was – but the responses that I read were along the lines of this is – it says it's based on a true story, but I don't believe that for two seconds. You know, right, that right. Well, I'll, I'll tell you uh, – um, you know, in terms of, of how people respond to things, it's, you know, listen, you know, torture porn movies, uh, like the hostile movies, uh, and there was, a, there've been a number of, I mean, for a while there, they were very hot, the Saw movies and things. Um, people flocked to those, um, even though that they were so completely outlandish. But I think that, you know, again, they were so outlandish uh, and so gory that they just didn't seem like they could possibly be real. Whereas compliance, I think, has an edge to it. Yeah. That seems uh, because, uh, from what I understand, it's not particularly gory. It is just psychologically traumatizing, and I think that people find that. I mean, you, there's a way uh, that you can, you know, switch off uh, gore by just going, ah, you know what? It's that's that's sugar water, red colored sugar water that they're using for blood, and you know, it's kind of a cartoon if you see someone's head explode uh, in, you know, in a in a horror film. Well, you're, you're absolutely right, because um, these Milgram experiments, although they were done 60 years ago, every couple of decades there are people that repeat them again right. with the idea of testing whether because there's been changes culturally, that kind of thing. And the BBC recently repeated the one from the New York subway. They went to right. a London shopping center, and one of the researchers walked around and said to people, can I have your seat? And would get these little old ladies and little old men to get up and give their seats, and he had to stop it. Because it right. was becoming so distasteful and uncomfortable, even though not, I mean, all you're doing is getting somebody to give up their seat, but it's just, once you see it in action, it's something that really kind of hits you in the bottom of your stomach is just being wrong. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? 
under the skin creepiness that it, wow. there's no, no, you're not hurting anybody. There's no blood. There's no guts. There's no gore. There is an element, I think, to that in any form of entertainment that has to be looked at, not just, you know, the, 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 the sprays of blood and the fangs yeah. and things of that nature. Yeah. Well, uh, I mentioned Ken Russell. I'm just going to show something cool. Here's a, this is not part of my topic, but the book is about uh, Ken Russell's movie, The Devils. And so I had an artist commissioned to do a portrait of it, and it just arrived. And uh, this is the portrait of uh, Ken Russell that will be uh, at the, the book launch on display. And I kind of love it. This is the Ken Russell that I met. A little older, uh, possibly a little cantankerous edge to him. <laughs> and uh, But I, I was kind of uh, tickled with the painting, and I'm uh, looking forward to sharing it with everybody. So, and mischievous. Uh, I, I love the, the hat. It's a little... Absolutely, yeah. No, he, he, was, he was certainly all of that, sort of you know, eccentric and mischievous and all and everything that you could possibly kind of imagine uh, wanting in, in someone who could create... Uh, these images that honestly one scene can never be forgotten. Well, you know, this is why when people write books to be published, it's always best if you can get it to be a passionate subject matter because you're, you're not just simply writing a book and publishing it and, and allowing the marketing engine to kind of, you're, you're making it this wonderful kind of, you know, this project where you're, you're mm -hmm. getting photographs and you're, you're finding all the details and you're getting artifacts from the films and you're, you're creating this wonderful experience. Uh, you know, you're, you're really sharing beyond just offering something for people to buy. Yeah. Well, and, and for me, this weekend was uh, a big one because, uh, uh, Guillermo del Toro, I, he called me a week ago to tell me how much he liked the book, and he emailed me this weekend with a quote that reads, uh, uh, Raising Hell, which is the name of the book, is an exhaustive, vivid, and passionate account of one of the most powerful and transgressive films ever made. This is not only a great book, it's a necessary book. Guillermo del Toro, thank you very much. Uh, so, in keeping in that, in that line, uh, for my uh, next topic, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, possession movies. And, uh, you know, ever since The Exorcist came along, people can't seem to get enough of these movies. And I mentioned a movie uh, earlier on called The Possession. This is what looks to me to be a low-budget film. I haven't done the research on this because, frankly, I haven't had the time, but it's not an expensive movie. These movies rarely ever are. And there's a couple of things that I liked about this movie a lot. It's a really simple story. Uh, uh, a couple, you know, they're divorced. The kids are going back and forth between the mother and the father. The father is trying to do anything he can to keep these kids happy. So he takes them to a flea market. His daughter sees this carved box at the flea market. It's about this big. And uh, she loves it. He's like, whatever, it's five bucks. Here you go, sweetie, take it home. She uh, loves this thing, but then she starts to change, you know, and she she starts staring off into space. She starts talking back to him. She gets moody. So either she's a typical teenager or something in this box has possessed her. And, uh, of course, it's something in the box that's possessed her. And the thing that I liked about this movie is that it was kind of a throwback to old-school possession movies in the sense that, 
it, it, it doesn't use a lot of special effects. There are some, but not very many. Uh, one of the most effective parts of this movie is the little girl walking past a table, and the table, just it's a, just in their house, I think. And the table has all these like empty glasses and some half-full glasses and some jars and things on it. And as she walks by, the camera pans along with it, and you see her face distort as she walks past all these glasses because they're shooting through the glasses. Absolutely the oldest and simplest visual trick in the book, but it really works well. It gives you a sense of, you know, this demon living inside her, these twisted, weird faces. And so this this movie has a lot of atmosphere and a lot of that kind of stuff. It's not, you know, it's one of those movies that as you're watching it, you think, wow, this is, uh, this is pretty good. Whoa, I'm scared now. Then you go home and you think about it, and you're like, oh, come on. But while you're in the theater, it's okay. It's worth your 10, 12 bucks. Uh, <laughs> But it made a lot of money over the weekend, and I think unexpectedly so. There was a movie that had uh, it was up against uh, with Shia LaBeouf, Tom Hardy, Jessica Chastain, Mia Vajikovska, Guy Pearson, of all of you know young Hollywood A-listy types, and that movie did okay too. But The Possession, starring Kira Sedgwick, you know, I mean, people like her from The Closer, I guess, but you know, mm -hmm. uh, she's a, as far as I know, not a huge draw in the movie theaters. And uh, um, and the guy that used to play Denny on Grey's Anatomy, Jeffrey Morgan. Um, so essentially, no big stars, uh, but the possession, the the demon possession, is the is the star, is the draw here, and that's the thing that has kept people coming back to the theaters time after time after time. So I had a little look around, and the thing that sort of uh, intrigued me about this, um, but it's uh, uh, kind of interesting, is that it's the box really that has the evil in it. It's not just the demon. There is demon in the box, but the box is an evil thing. So it got me thinking about inanimate objects that have, that, and that have been used in the movies uh, that are evil. And I'll just do a, a quick rundown of some of these. I mean, uh, you know, Stephen King wrote about uh, a house that eats people in his movie, in his uh, uh, series, The Dark Tower, right? Mm -hmm. uh, later, Robert Zemeckis and Steven Spielberg took that idea borrowed, let's say borrowed that idea, and made a kid's movie called uh, Monster House, the appropriately titled Monster's House. I love, it's little boys and girls, and they go in this house, and there is a, a, a giant uvula hanging down, because this thing is a house with a mouth, with, with a mouth, and uh, one of the, the kids goes, look at this uvula, and another little boy goes, I didn't know it was a girl house. Yeah. Funny. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so you've got, you know, you've, you've got that, uh, and it's a, and the animated if you if you can find Monster House on DVD, have a look at it. It's good. It's a good um, movie. Yeah, I really yeah, enjoyed it. The Amityville Horror uh, was also another sort of haunted house movie. Walls bled, ceilings did weird things. Uh, but by the time they got around to the fourth and fifth episodes, <laughs> they had to find something else. So um, the storyline in uh, uh, the previous ones had been new owners move into a house, they get freaked out, and then they leave. Uh, so in the Amityville Horror, the evil escapes. A cursed lamp causes all kinds of trouble when it's shipped from the evil Long Island house in Amityville to a California mansion. So it starts the evil all anew. But it's a cursed lamp. That made me laugh a little oh, bit. Oh, wow. And the movie, I love it that the movie take, plays it really seriously, or takes it very straight. Uh, my, my favorite of all of these, though, is a movie called uh, Rubber. And I don't know if you've if you've I heard of this. It, no. it is a, it, it's the story of a killer tire, and and it's a movie that played some film festivals and got a lot of buzz. I think because people were so kind of like 
uh, amazed that someone would seriously make a movie about a killer tire. But it's a killer tire, as I wrote at the time, think carry with treads because it has psychokinetic powers, and that's how it kills people. And it terrorizes the American Southwest. And really, more than that, it's a it's a sort of a, a a look at how and why we watch movies, what entertainment is, and and you know how the movie business responds to all those things. But really, it's about a tire rolling around the desert, <laughs> and, and it's so visually weird and abstract and strange. Uh, it's it's kind of like natural born killers, but round and rubbery. And that is the thing uh, that I think it makes having a look at. Doesn't mean it's a great movie, but it's certainly no. worth uh, a look at. And it is the kind of embodiment of evil. And then in an article I wrote about this, uh, I also had this one. And I just love movies that tell you everything you need to know in the title. And this one, I've never seen it, but it's called Deathbed, The Bed That Eats. <laughs> So these are all inanimate objects, inanimate objects that have just a little bit of the evil in them. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I love, uh, you know, movies that are sort of willing to push the envelope a little bit, try and find new villains. You know, how many times have we seen the crazy stepmother or whatever else, you know, all that kind of stuff. But uh, an evil lamp or a killer tire, that's a whole tire. new level of crazy. That's funny. <laughs> uh, I remember when Christine came out. Yeah, um, right. Everybody right. was talking about that, and uh, the great part about it being that you know it's a car that's almost like a vampire, doesn't really drain your blood, but maybe drain your energy. I, right. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but the yeah. the thing that everybody would pass on is how wonderful it is that somebody would be driving it, and then because they're being fed on, it slowly sort of snuffed <laughs> on the wheel. I mean, that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I listen. I you know, I I certainly. Uh, have a, a fondness for B movies. I, uh, you know, I've, I've got a couple of books out called "The Hundred Best Movies You've Never Seen," and in those books, there's a ton of B movies. And I like uh, ideas that sort of push the limits of credulity a little bit. You know, like you can have a killer tire. Frankly, if you want a killer tire, you can have a killer tire in my world. Uh, but you just have to make the movie. Uh, uh, you have to make the the world surrounding that killer tire. Yeah, you have to have that make sense. You have, you have to, have, to have, you have to create a world to go with it, and uh, yeah. the, sometimes I mean, rubber mostly does that, not entirely. The Amityville movie is, is just that was just a cash in, and Deathbed, the death, the bed that eats. <laughs> and <laughs> that one started with a title. That one was like, ah, you know, <laughs> Deathbed. Well, like a riff. How can we riff on that? <laughs> <laughs> or or one scene, you know, we got this great scene yeah. where somebody's going to die. We just have to make a movie around it. Yeah, uh, yeah I think it, you know some of the classic films are really great in terms of creating a foundation. Right. As long as you create that foundation, then anything can happen. It's like, oh, they found a monkey's paw. Well, yeah, they it wish, was. and you know, suddenly. The finger would uncurl, and hijinks and hysteria would happen as a result of it. You know. Well, everyone was was at uh, Clint Eastwood because of the empty chair speech that he made earlier this week. And frankly, I thought it was kind of a ridiculous piece of theater, but <laughs> <laughs> I did. But yeah. uh, but there are people that are, are sticking up for it, you know, on, on, on both sides, really. But, you know, saying, hey, you know, you got this 82 or three-year-old guy who was, like, improvised for 12 minutes with an empty chair and kept a room full of people entertained. So on that level, maybe, yeah, maybe it worked. I don't think it worked entirely. But no. uh, there's movies like Harvey that have an invisible six-foot rabbit that you never see 
And uh, you have a world that is created around this six-foot rabbit, though, with Edward P. Dowd, played by James Harvey, uh, James Stewart in the movie. And it works because he works, James Stewart's character works, and the world that they create in the movie makes you accept that he sees this six-foot rabbit. Or it doesn't see it, but you understand why the premise is happening. You know, it took me a long time to see Harvey. Right. Harvey was one of those movies that was on my list of, I'm not going to see it. I'm avoiding yeah. it because I just got a bad yeah. feeling about it. And part of it was, I couldn't believe that it was the movie that it really is. Yeah. That I had both pieces of information kind of coming at me. I thought it was going to be this very old-fashioned, quaint kind of approach yeah. of a man who sees an invisible rabbit. But I had also heard from people that actually it's, it's a well-written, well-acted yeah. piece of imagination that you have to kind of see. And when I saw it, I was just, my jaw dropped in absolute wonderment at what the, that it was made. That somebody, you know, managed to convince somebody else to get the money and say, you know, and get James Stewart to do the role. Uh, to play make a movie which is about a supernatural problem. creature. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like, hey, we're going to have this movie about leprechauns. And yeah. I don't, I just, but it was so well done yeah. Yeah. that, yeah, I, I sort of felt bad that I hadn't found it earlier because I think yeah. that it's, it's really well done. And well done when I say that. I mean, there are lots of movies that you see that feature supernatural creatures, whether it be vampires or werewolves, that are done by people who clearly have no appreciation for that genre whatsoever. Right. Harvey is a real genre piece and that the people who've written it have done it based on real mythology. They have appreciation for that kind of stuff. And yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's awesome, actually. <laughs> yeah, I know it is awesome. And I'm just trying to find a picture here but of course, I'm not going to find anything that gives you a good idea of what uh, of, of. But essentially, you've got a great and lovable actor playing a drunk in this movie, who yeah. his best friend is a six foot tall invisible invisible rabbit, uh, and it's a fantastic movie. If you haven't seen it, it really is worth a look. And um, I haven't seen it in a long time. Maybe that will be my. Uh, for after the Toronto Film Festival. That will be my unwind, uh, my day of unwinding. I'll watch Harvey. Well, I, it's, it's, on, it's one of the projects I want to do is to go off and track down that hat so that I can cut two ear holes in it. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's the kind of movie that it is. If you're into genre films, you're into supernatural stuff, you, you have to go see Harvey because I think it's, it's done really, really well. And it's one of those stories that could have been, um, say, on the Twilight Zone or something yeah. like that, where very minimalistic. You don't have to have much happening. Uh, just a few spare props and one man's great performance and imagination. And yeah. you have a very convincing story. Yeah. yeah. Which... I think may have been the kind of thing that Clint Eastwood was trying to do and failed completely at. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Clint, I, I, you know, I don't want to beat the guy up. Uh, you know, we apparently we're not, uh, and I, I don't know why this is a surprise. We're not uh, ideologically aligned, let's say, Clint and no. I. <laughs> but I, I wasn't so, so surprised by that. Uh, but I mean, you know, I have the idea that I, I know what he was going for, you know, and. And it just didn't really seem to work for me. And it didn't work for a number of reasons. I mean, I don't think it worked uh, because he seemed to be playing to the audience in front of him rather than the television audience. So I don't know how many people are there. 20,000 people. It was a big place. There's a lot of people there. They're going to love that Clint Eastwood's on stage in front of them. He can ignore them. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You're, you're trying to play to the audience that's on television. There's millions of people watching. So that seemed a little bit of a bad choice. It seemed to go on for too long. I think had it, had he brought the chair out 
and had the chair sit there for eight minutes while he talked to the camera about what a great guy Mitt Romney is. And then at, at, at the end of it, as a kicker, leaned over and said, Obama, you're not saying much. Well, you haven't been saying much for four years or something, you know, yeah, just yeah. used it as a, used it as like a kicker to uh, the whole speech. It might've worked, but to make it the basis of the entire speech, uh, I just didn't think was good showbiz. No, no. Or, you know, if he had a solid idea at the beginning, maybe this was something he had tested out with friends, yeah. actually had something written. I got the feeling that, you know, whatever he had planned, he'd sort of abandoned or tried to improvise when he was on stage. If he maybe stayed committed to what his original idea was, yeah. regardless, maybe that would have worked. I don't know. But well, it, yeah. he, he also, I mean, I thought, uh, you know, he's, you know, he's Clint. Uh, so, I mean, just the mere presence is going to, you know, steal some of the thunder. But I thought he, he took the thunder from the presidential candidate yeah. on the biggest night of his political career, probably, or one of, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and can you remember a thing that Romney said after that? No. No. Well, everyone... Clint, I can't remember anything that Clint said about Romney. Right. None of his performance was about the actual candidate. It just seemed to be that he was there because yeah. he didn't want to vote for Obama, which is a horrible reason to choose any yeah. particular party, to, to align is. yourself anywhere. Yeah. So Clint, I still, you know, I still love the Clint. Uh, I, I met him uh, in December, or maybe it was November. I can't remember. In New York, I was at a cocktail party that he was to be at, and so I get there and, and I look over there, and there's David Byrne, and I'm like, oh, one of the Talking Heads is there. That's so cool. And over here, Alan Cummings, and there's people everywhere. And uh, and then Clint walked in the room, and the whole room just went like this, tilted towards him. And you know, even though there were a lot of very famous people in that room, Clint was the legend. And you know, he has that kind of charisma, even though he's very quiet, he's soft spoken. Um, he was wearing a golf shirt, a little blazer, you know, and he had a glass of red wine and he talked to people, but you could just tell that there was something really charismatic and something interesting about him. And unfortunately, I didn't see that as much on the show on the on, at the Republican convention. So it's just too bad because um, I just felt it was kind of a lost opportunity. Yeah, no, I agree entirely. Um, well, okay, I'm going to switch gears yeah. and talk about another person that's been around for a very long time, has had tremendous influence, and that's Doctor Who. Um, uh, yeah. This past weekend was the beginning of the seventh season of Doctor Who. Uh, I, I guess you're not, you don't follow the series yourself. I do not. I'm not a, a Who person. I, I like the band The Who. I enjoy okay. Pete Townsend, and uh, I enjoyed the Guess Who. But uh, no, not so much with Doctor Who. Right. Well, and I, I kind of anticipated that. So what I will talk about and in terms of why Doctor Who is great, the series that's been around since 1963 now. I know. It took a little break in the, in the 80s, though, didn't it? Wasn't it off for a little while? Yeah, it, it did. Uh, they tried to create uh, an American version. They did a, a sort of a, a right. movie of the week with Paul Gann playing the Doctor. That was really good, by the way. Um, but for whatever reason, it just couldn't take off. I guess they right. couldn't find a producing partner in the U.S. I don't know. It was one of those things. It kind of crazy because I think that the series was just needed to be uh, placed into the right hands. And then in 2005, right. uh, we had Russell Davies, and you've got uh, – uh, Stephen Moffat now controlling the series, and it's been fantastic. They've gone through mm -hmm. three different Doctors. It's been a walloping, wonderful, fantastic series just to watch in terms of offering really good science fiction. But I wanted to talk about uh, the whole sort of experience of Doctor Who in terms of why I think that it is wonderful and unique and, and to give you at least a bit of an appreciation <laughs> about right. that series. And, and what's great about Doctor Who as a character, I mean, it's a long list 
of things that you could punch off. You, it, once you start to think about it, you realize, wow, this series is so incredibly complicated because it stars, um, first and foremost, someone who's not human. Right. Uh, most people I talk to don't realize that, but the doctor is actually not a human being. Well, he's got two hearts, doesn't he? He has two hearts. He is uh, an alien. They, they, his race is called the Time Lord. I'm not going to get too nerdy on it, but he's not of this planet. Okay? Oh, I, I think it's too late for that. It's too late already? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, you, you have a hero. He looks like us. He talks like us. But inside, he's most certainly not us, which I think is interesting. He's also uh, a nonviolent hero. He's one of the, the, from that tradition of people that tries to use his mind and figure out the situation rather than picking up a gun. That's also something we generally don't see from the main character. And he is, of course, someone who is uh, a scientist in many ways. He's considered to be highly, highly intelligent. And that is something you don't see. Usually, like in Star Trek, the alien scientist, <laughs> nonviolent guy is Spock. He's number two. Right, that's right. Yeah, that's right. right. You know, that guy never gets to be the main hero. And yet in Doctor Who, that's exactly who you have. Uh, but when you have to try to, to write the doctor, it's a very, very difficult thing because here's a guy who travels around in a box. It's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. You have to deal with the, the fact that he's both a time traveler, but also he moves through space as well as time. The, the complications that are involved in, the, in terms of writing your stories and realizing that you can't resolve it by pulling out a gun, you can't resolve it by killing somebody, creates stories that are very intricate and unpredictable. You don't know where exactly that they're going to go. Right. But the great thing about the doctor is that everybody who has to write him uh, gets you know, a set of guidelines, although some writers apparently said they never got those guidelines. But <laughs> one of them is that you're not allowed to go inside the doctor's head. That at oh. no point in time are we allowed to know what he is thinking because right. he is a human being who is not just highly intelligent, but he's smarter than even the smartest person on the planet. He uh, has the benefit of having all these past lives to draw upon their experiences right. and their intelligence. He's from a, a superior race. And so no one, no human being writing the series could ever hope to try to get inside his head and, and, and sort of imagine what he's thinking. That at any given point in time, he's probably thinking about 56 different things, which is always what's sort of fascinating to watch the series. That when he walks into a room, he's noticing about 150 different things. He's probably solved the next three pages worth of scripts. But now he has to, you know, the writers have to find a way to kind of drag as long as he slowly sort of spells it all out for us. Right. That kind of thing. Very, very fascinating. Neil Gaiman uh, recently received a Hugo Award for writing one of the latest episodes of The Doctor called The Doctor's uh, Wife. Fantastic series. I mean, he, you well, give a guy like Neil Gaiman a chance to write, and he's going to do some incredible, incredible stuff. Well, my here's an, this is unrelated a little bit, but I read a story about this yesterday. So Neil is accepting his award at the Hugo Awards Thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people are watching it being streamed online. And all of a sudden, in the middle of it, it shuts down. And have you heard about it? And it was shut down. And this is the part that I thought was ironic. The, the uh, science fiction awards are shut down by robots who, look, who, who go on the net and look for copyright infringement. Right. And, and so they, 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 they played clips, I guess, from Doctor Who and any number of shows, whoever, whatever was nominated, you know, in his yeah. category. And these robots went, oh, this isn't good, and shut it down. 
And then uh, a, a message apparently came up and said, no, copyright infringement, this show will not be coming back on. But I just thought, how ironic, I don't know if it's ironic, how, how odd that you have the Science Fiction Awards being, you know, kiboshed by robots, unmanned robots. If, if only you knew that that was going to happen, then Neil right. could hold up a sonic screwdriver and just point it at the screen yeah, totally. and the whole thing kind of go fuzzy. Um, yeah, no, and that's that's perfect. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why you don't hear any music on Hail You Zombies, by the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because YouTube does have these roving programs that do shut down stuff if you, you play what's considered to be copyright infringement. It's yeah. annoying because it's not always accurate, you know? Well, that's that's it. I mean, that's this is what happened. I mean, presumably, all the clips had been uh, provided by the studios or by the, their copyright owners because, of course, they're nominated for a very prestigious award. So, of course, you're going to give them a clip that's already been cleared. Uh, or even if they hadn't been, um, I would think that, you know, a clip at an award show is the very idea of fair use, which is the idea that you can use something even if you haven't cleared the rights, if you use just a short uh, uh, segment of it in, in a way that uh, is... Uh, completely in the context of what it is you're trying to explain or or illustrate, and so I don't know. I just found that amusing. One of one of the sort of ironies of the internet age. Well, when um, Curiosity land on, landed on Mars, NASA provided footage of it to various news agencies, right? Who immediately incorporated it into their newscasts, and right. then had their software updated to copyright those newscasts. Right, so of course. NASA right, right. themselves uploaded their own footage to YouTube. YouTube ended up rejecting, because <laughs> it was now perceived to be in conflict with the news broadcasts, yeah. even though it was their you know, footage and, and obvious. you know. So you get a lot of that kind of monkeying around. Well, it's, um, it's, it's circular, right? Welcome to the circular Kafka-esque hell of the internet. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it is important because those are often the kinds of problems that, that pop up in the middle of the, of the doctor's adventures, that often he's right. up against, you know, um, whether it be technology or the way that the society thinks, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, Neil Gaiman, in terms of winning an award for writing for the, the, the doctor, he was asked what was it like to write for a character like Doctor Who, who is this character that is unlike any other character we've seen in literature because he he has lived 12 different lives, uh, trying to sit down and get just sort of wrap yourself around what kind of a person that he is. Right. Uh, he is infinitely curious by nature, that sort of thing. So Neil Gaiman said, and I always love this, he says that you have to understand that the Doctor is very, very different. That if most people were given a choice between being handed a million dollars or being able to watch a sunset, most people would choose the million dollars. Right. But the doctor would choose the sunset because to him, that's the more interesting thing to experience. Right, right. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I, as I said, I've never, I've never seen it, uh, but it, it's just starting to, I mean, I, I've heard, of course, of this show for, for decades probably, but it seems to me that it's just sort of now getting more of a toehold in North America. Yes. And you know, I think... It's, be, it's become something that I'm hearing about more. I mean, Entertainment Weekly, I don't know if I still have it kicking around here somewhere, but Entertainment Weekly did uh, a, a huge story on it recently, and I, I read it, which is how I know he has two hearts, because uh, I read that in the story. And, and it's kind of a fascinating thing. I love the, the kind of lo-fi look of the early Doctor Who episodes. They didn't cost very much. The, the sets looked like they were made of cardboard and that kind of thing. But people loved it, you know. And, yeah. and you know, if you talk to a whole generation of Brits, you know, who grew up with this, they're very protective of their Doctor Who. 
Yeah, and I think part of it is just that there's been a general rise of genre in terms of television. So from that, people have become more, uh, I think, aware of the television series. It was hard because the original run of the Doctor, uh, Doctor Who series in the 1970s, of course, it was serialized. You know, yeah. when you tuned in, um, in all likelihood, what you were watching was the third episode in five episodes. And, and you would have no idea what was going on, right? Unless right. you would see the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And especially in the first, like, five Doctors, you know, there was no way to see the episodes again. Once right. they had aired, that was it. You right. could go out maybe buy the novel. But you could yeah. not actually watch the series again because there was no uh, DVDs. There were no VHS tapes at that time. Mm. So it, I think... Had it continued on instead of taking that break, it might have been picked up and given better appreciation. But now that it's been out recently uh, and people are sort of coming to it because they've been watching series like, say, Firefly or True Blood, they're discovering and going, wow, this is actually really, really good. Uh, it also helps that the, the new people that are writing it are fantastic. Uh, well, and, and fans, hardcore fans of it. They're not just writers for hire that have been brought on. And they're like, all right, I got to, you know, this is my gig for this week. Now, these are people who are, are fans, according to this entertainment Oh, completely. Right. I mean, uh, you know, when they first started, one of the first things they did was take all the best episodes from the earlier Doctor Who and say, okay, this, this is what we got to do. And they right. ended up taking a series that was serialized, so you had to wait five weeks to complete, say, one episode, and right. turned it into something where the whole story takes place in one episode. And right. is ratcheted up. You've got a lot of adrenaline. But I think what they, they did that was very smart was they took a look at the run in the 1970s where you had Tom Baker, who is my doctor, by the way. Everybody talks about their doctor. There's like right, 12 of them, right. and it's the one that you grew up with. <laughs> so my doctor would be Tom Baker. But uh, the Tom Baker years in which Douglas Adams was the script editor. Right, right, and right. During that period, you had this wonderful combination of both laughter and sheer shock and horror where the series kind of moves back and forth between, you know, horrible creatures coming at you and then at the same time them making little cute asides. And the new series, right. that's exactly the formula that they've been following. It's been wonderfully uh, fantastic. I think done really, really well. Right. Well, you, uh, you mentioned Tom Baker. Let's have a look. Let's have a look at Tom Baker because th th this to me is the, the Doctor Who that I remember hearing about and seeing. The guy with the floppy hat, the long scarf. Uh, this was this is to me Doctor Who when I think. Of yes, it, it, Tom Baker. You know, um, again because he had that great ability in one sort of story to be able to uh, be ridiculously funny, to be right. very charmingly amusing, and then play something that was serious and very dramatic. And that was something right. that it's very hard to do. You don't see it too often in television. Uh, of the people who've been working on Doctor Who for many years, they say one of the the real challenges for them because the character keeps changing physically. You have to right. go out and find another actor to play the role every four or five years is that it's extremely hard to play highly intelligent people on television. Right. And based on their experience, you, you either find two things. You find an actor who really is intelligent or an actor who's completely off his rocks. That <laughs> <laughs> that kind of works. That right. you know, because then the guy comes off as being highly eccentric, or you know, he seems to be able to think very, very fast. But they've all often said of Tom Baker is that he was quite obviously a little bit of both. Right. Well, it's interesting. I think of of characters uh, who you know, uh, like on crime procedurals. Often, if there's a if there's a cop character, I think of um, uh, Law and Order uh, criminal 
Intent? What was it called? Line Order Criminal Intent CI. That one had Vincent D'Onofrio played a guy who was supposed to be, you know, one episode I remember watching. It's like, he speaks Russian too? Like, the guy could just, he just seemed to have an incredible amount of information just at his fingertips. Uh, but, of course, later on, they they started introducing, uh, you know, uh, some real personality quirks into the character, I think, because it is, I think, you're, you're bang on. It's hard to play that kind of intelligence. People don't buy it. So they, they had to, I don't know, humanize him somehow or make him seem really eccentric and odd so that he would have that kind of knowledge. I, I don't know what it was, but this, it's an example of what you were talking about in another kind of thing, not just a science fiction setting. Yeah, I think with the new Doctor Who, their approach has been to take that ball of energy, that eccentricity, the fact that you have someone who can think 56 different things at the same time and sort of calculating in advance and turn that into a personality Right. which is very engaging. He's constantly walking around and almost flirting and, and being delightful with everybody that he meets. And that becomes just someone who you're, you're almost just happy to be around. It's just pleasant to kind of spend time with this person as they're running around. Uh, and, and sort of, you know, one of the, the quirks of the, the current doctor is that he keeps trying to insist to his companions that, uh, you know, his new fashion choices are cool. He insisted that wearing a <laughs> tie is now cool. He wore a, right. a fez white famously and said, you know, well, fezes are in. They're cool. And his companions are like, no, they're not. You know, just drop it. Stop doing it. Anyways, I'm, I, one of the problems with being a Doctor Who fan is that it's a very long wait. Almost an entire right. year you have to wait for the series to come back on. It came back on this past weekend. The first episode was fantastic. The next one, they're already enthusiastically promising dinosaurs on spaceship. As a Whovian for a very long time, I'm extremely happy the series is back. So there right. you go. <laughs> at, uh, at Fan Expo, I saw a lot of people with fezes on. I guess it was a Doctor Who tribute. I didn't. I didn't get that. I was thinking Maltese Falcon. You know, that's me though. I mean, what do we have? Peter Laurie fans in the house here? <laughs> well, some of them might have actually been Shriners. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, you never know. Yeah, you never know. But there are a lot of fezes there. Um, so, uh, movie pistols at dawn. We 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 banter back and forth about uh, favorite things and ideas in movies. That's right. And um, this week. I think in keeping with the Doctor Who theme, uh, we wanted to uh, have a look at time machines uh, in the movies and on television. And, uh, I mean, if you just punch in time machine plus movies, your computer will explode because there's been a lot of them. Uh, and I think for me, and uh, because of, of when I grew up, I look back to 1985. I look back to the future, even, you might say. And uh, I think it's probably... Uh, for my money, the most iconic time machine from, you know, a sort of modern day film uh, was the DeLorean that was uh, powered by the flux capacitor. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's interesting to me because the car itself uh, is so iconic looking that even if you haven't seen the movie or if you haven't seen it for a very long time, a quick glimpse of the car and you're like, well, it's the uh, DeLorean, you know, this Doc Brown's DeLorean uh, it's powered by the flux capacitor. You know exactly uh, what it is and where it is. So I think just as a, as a, as a movie prop, it works so beautifully because it looked different. I mean, it's so kind of on some levels mundane, but then, you know, the doors open and they open up on the sides and there's all yeah. kinds of cool stuff inside uh, that I think that it's, it's got that kind of interesting blend of the, you know, the, the, the mundane 
and the really sublime in terms of, of uh, you know, a, a prop from a movie that is going to stay with you for a very long time. Well, and just the, the tire tracks that it leaves yeah, behind right. are still all sort of lit with fire. Uh, it's, it's also one of the, the few time machines that actually solves the problem of traveling through space as well right. as time. Right. Uh, right. Unlike, you know, some of the others where you actually have to physically drag the machine to where you want to be able to go in time, at least uh, with the idea of the car, and after the modifications, you would sort of fly to the location, then travel through time. That made a lot of sense to me. And yeah. they, they, they had a mock-up at the Fan Expo, and it was incredible. I mean, it was one of the biggest attractions there. Uh, you know, even though there was huge Daleks roaming around, <laughs> everybody wanted to have their photos taken with this DeLorean, you know what I mean? <laughs> Well, there, there's a guy, I mean, a guy that lives just outside of Toronto, who's, who's maybe this was the guy that was there, who has spent years piecing together the, the DeLorean and, and sort of, you know, with real DeLorean parts. And then and I think he's even got some props from the parts of the original uh, DeLorean that they used in the movie, and he's put them in there. And maybe, maybe that was the one that was at Fan Expo, I don't know. Yeah, no, it's it's fantastic, and I, I've noticed. I missed of, that. Otherwise, I would have been in that thing. <laughs> I'd be put, <laughs> I would be putting up a picture of me in that vehicle right now. Here, I, I missed that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and the odd thing about it is that at Fan Expo, you have a mix of all these other different props and stuff. So you right. have, you know, Stormtrooper standing next to Doctor Who, and in most cases, it's, it doesn't really kind of fit. It's it's very clear that you have two very different. Right. Worlds kind of colliding, but I saw an entire team of Ghostbusters hanging out with that DeLorean, and it looked right. That's, it right. Just, That's right. That's right. <laughs> it made complete sense. Well, you I, know, if you know, time-wise too, 1984, 1985, it was you know, it all made sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you've made a good choice, and you're 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 probably going to win. Um, well, no doubt you're you're going to win. Because I decided to make the goofy choice this week. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's my turn to do the goofy choice. I'm going to explain right. how I arrived at this rather goofy choice. Okay. Which was that um, as soon as I saw this photograph of it, I just immediately fell in love. And this is the, the time map from Time Bandits. Oh, listen. I, I love that it's a time. I know. I, I, it's a map of time. That's it. That's all yeah. it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I know. So I, <laughs> but when I saw it, I immediately fell in love with it. I just, I love that movie. Uh, oh, hold on, go away. There we are. Just you know, b -b 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 bring me the map. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. To turn what you uh, stole. <laughs> uh, and I, I was thinking about it. It's a beautiful prop. I mean, Terry Gilliam, of course, everything in his movies just is is just fantastic. It just screams yeah. in terms of imagination. All the little intricate details. Uh, and I was thinking about it, you know, the fantastic thing about this is that it is in some ways the ideal time machine because you just have to fold it up and put it in your pocket. Right. Uh, and yeah. it represents not an actual vehicle because I think that's most interpretations of what time traveling is, but just merely having the requisite knowledge that right. the actual world does support time travel. We just haven't figured it out yet. And if you do, if you had the, the requisite knowledge, you can actually kind of move around. Mm -hmm. So when I saw that, I mean, I fell in love with it. I thought, man, I would love to choose that. There are other time machines that are a little bit more appropriate, but I thought I'd go along online and I just wanted to kind of work at it and see the dwarves because it's just a, such a fantastic image. And then I came across this. And this is an actual replica. Oh, of the map. that's cool. A number of people have spent a lot of time and energy trying to reproduce. Right. Uh, 
in terms of using Photoshop to be able to get the hand-drawn look of all yeah. the different celestial uh, icons on it. And the best part is it's actually available online for free. It's a 2.7 gigabyte file mm. that you can download. You got the money, you can print it off. Right. But here's the thing about this map. It was partially created with the help of Mythbusters Adam Savage. Right. Helped color correct it, helped get all yeah. the it, and it is considered to be the most accurate replica on there. And he's such a, a replica nut. Yeah. If he says that's the case, then you can take that money to the bank and that, that is well, the case. So just because of Adam Savage and my love of Terry Gilliam, that's that's my choice. I don't think well, I'll win, but <laughs> Well, you know what? I, I listen, I fully support your choice in this one. And I, I don't know this for sure, but I know I've interviewed Terry Gilliam a bunch of times and he told me once because uh, he directed Time Bandits, and, and he also directed uh, The Holy Grail. And he said that the scene in The Holy Grail where uh, King Arthur and his men are coming up over the hill, he said he originally wanted them to be on horseback, but he only had like a million or a million and a half bucks to make this entire movie, and he just couldn't afford it. It was going to cost $15,000 to get horses for everybody and trainers and, you know, everything else he needed. And so he's like, what can I do? So he sticks them all on broomsticks, and he has a guy with a coconut following behind him. And he says, you know, now it's the thing uh, in the movie that everyone remembers. He goes, if I had had money, I would have been a shitty filmmaker. I just would have been a terrible filmmaker because I just would have thrown money at every problem and made really, you know, average, bland films. And it's interesting. I would wonder about the Time Bandits map if it yeah. was a budgetary thing where it was like, you know what, it would be funny if they uh, if they just had a map rather than a big elaborate set that they would have had to build, which would have cost money, right? I, I'm curious. Well, you know, I like the the approach of using a map because you could argue that a map has always been there through every mode of travel that we've exactly. ever had. Yeah. That it, it's sort of been the key component in terms of us being able to explore and visit other worlds, and so it kind of makes sense. And of course, I love the fact that the dwarves are actually you know employees. Uh, yeah, of the yeah, yeah. the creator yeah. that this sort of you know put together existence, and I think that uh, one of them has the best name I've ever heard in any movie of all of the history of movies, which is Horse Flesh. Oh yeah, yeah I just yeah. love that name. I just think as as a character in a story, Horse Flesh is just fantastic. So yeah, th there's my choice. I'm going with the map. <laughs> Return what you have stolen from me. It's just. And you can and you can vote on this at uh, heyoyouzombies.com. Be sure you do that. Before we go, I just wanted to, because we've been talking about B-movies a fair amount here. If you love B-movies, uh, go to a site called Trailers from Hell. I don't know if you've ever heard of Trailers from Hell. Joe Dante uh, runs this site, and he has famous film directors come in and talk, generally speaking, not always about B-movies, but frequently about B-movies that they love. And um, they recently ran into a little spot of trouble, a little spot of financial trouble, because it costs a lot of money to make these things. And uh, so they did a Kickstarter campaign, and I donated some money. And in the mail today, they, they, when you go for Kickstarter, if you donate money, typically there's, there's a, a prize that you get, some reward for doing it. An incentive, you, yeah. Yeah, an incentive. And so they had all sorts of things. Like, you know, if you give 25 bucks, you get, you know, uh, something or something. If you if you get you know if you donate a thousand, yeah, I think you you got to have dinner with Joe Dante and you get you know. So there were some pretty cool prizes. But it's like you know, the I know drive with Doctor Who, except exactly. you have a crappy mug. You actually get something cool. That's right. And so um, I, I I chose not to uh, take a prize because 
um, you know, I thought they're trying to raise money. I don't want them to spend a whole lot. But they had a, they, you, you get a, a, a certificate. And so this arrived in the mail today, signed by Joe Dante, and it's Trailers from Hell in recognition of stellar support for Trailers from Hell, Team Trailers from Hell. Cool. 